0: Well, have your Bibles. Uh, Go ahead and take those and turn those to Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter number 5 will be in two places in the book of Ephesians, along with, oh, several other uh, buffet of verses that I'll have up on the screen as well. But before we get into our final message in this series, and you can go ahead and take out your worship guide, inside of there you'll find an area for notes. We'll have several things for you to write down if you'd like to do that and follow along. Some folks like to hear, see, and then write. It helps you to retain what you've heard. And so that's there to help as well. Uh, before we get into the message, I just want to give a couple of announcements that are near and dear to my heart. Number one, next Sunday, we start a new series entitled Believable How Christianity is Both Rational and Wonderful. Um, if you know of anyone, or maybe you yourself, you're a skeptic, you. Uh, wrestled with questions about atheism. You know, is there a God? Is there not a God? Um, if you have friends, family, neighbors, coworkers uh, that have ever had questions about that. You know, if there's a God, why is there all this pain and suffering in the world? Um, you know, how can we know there's a God? And uh, how can we know that Christianity is the right religion out of all the thousands of religions out there? And so what we're going to do over the next 9 to 10 weeks is help you, equip you, but also in the process of equipping you of how to give solid answers for why you believe the things you believe. We also want to invite people that we might know who are seriously searching and seeking. We're going to have a table set up in the lobby next week. I've been making plans for this. we going to have a table with several resources that any skeptic, atheist, or agnostic if they have genuine questions and would like to avail themselves of some resources we're going to have those to give and so uh, i'm kind of cutting in and out guys so i don't know if that's my receiver or what but i might have to switch to a handheld mic Am, am i cutting out yeah i'm cutting out there's like every 15 seconds so turn me off there i'll go to handheld that way so we'll figure out number 30. all right i can't use both of my hands to preach today this is going to be scary Wow, I sound sound much more alive and vibrant. All right, and so that's going to be starting next Sunday, February the 3rd, and then also starting next Sunday, February the 3rd, is what we're calling a believable small group where we're going to take the sermon and have a sermon-based follow-up discussion. That'll be led by myself and my wife in room 143, which is where our starting point room here here is, right next to Child Check-In. And that's going to be a discussion-based follow-up from each week's message in the series. And so um, this would be a great way that if you have questions during my sermon that you would like to ask me, then we'll be doing that immediately following the service uh, each Sunday leading up to Easter. I'm excited about this series because we're going to be able to finally somewhat finish the book of 1 Corinthians as well as we near the end, as we talk about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 towards the end of that series so I'm looking forward to this I hope you'll be in prayer for this Uh, there's many even young people here in our church who have started going to college and they've been confronted with a lot of secular humanism and atheistic arguments in secular schools by the way I don't know if you know this but in a lot of secular institutions today it's not about education it's about indoctrination And so we're going to uh, show these young people, uh, many of which are are, are here, that they've already heard a lot of these arguments. Um, And so we're going to give them arguments from God's Word about why Christianity uh, makes sense and why it's wonderful and why it's true. And so I'm looking forward to that series. And uh, let's just stop and have a war of prayer. There's, you know... Stuff going on with the sound system and everything. So, listen, if it pops or whatever, I'm going to try not to be distracted. You try not to either. Let's just ask the Lord to guard our thoughts today and guide our study. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. We pray that you would help us now to uh, cut out any distractions that would seek to distract us, Father, and um, help us as we go through this passage in Ephesians 5. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you desire for us to see truth today. And to believe it with our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen just a quick review over the first three weeks of our series, Transformed. What's the purpose behind this series? We've really been sharing with you our heart for ministry of what we hope to see the gospel do in our lives. The gospel saves us. We're thankful for that. And the gospel shapes us. It transforms us. And so in the first few weeks, we talked about how we can recognize our need for transformation and the difference between outward conformity and inward transformation. In week two, we talked about realizing the true source of transforming power in our life and that comes from the gospel. The gospel is a message, the gospel is a person, the gospel is powerful. Last week we talked about rediscovering the process of transformation from Galatians 5. And we talked about the fruit of the spirit and how this process is gradual, it's internal, it's symmetrical and it's inevitable. And so if you missed any of these 3 weeks in this series, I really would encourage you to go back and listen to all of them. I believe they will be a help to us. And Uh, this week we're looking at this truth, and that is measuring the progress of this transformation in our lives. So if the process is gradual, internal, symmetrical, and inevitable, then how do we see that progression taking shape in our lives? And so with that, let's read our key text that we've been kind of theming everything around, and that is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so, here in this passage, we see that it's God that is doing the transforming work in our lives. And this verse that gets quoted a lot comes out of the context of a powerful declaration of what the gospel actually is. So um, go back to verse 6, and if you read verse 6 through 17, which leads up to verse 18, you'll see what the source of transformation really is. It's the, it's the gospel. It's the new covenant of what Jesus accomplished for us. And so we've said for several weeks now that this gospel is wonderful because, yes, it saves us, but it also transforms us. It shapes our lives and so but transformation i mean if we're honest we've been in this series now for three weeks but we can still say this about transformation that it is a mystery in many ways in fact the bible mentions a lot of things that are mysteries and certainly this process of being truly changed from the inside out is a mystery now mystery is not just something that is delegated to the realm of spiritual things Um, there's mystery even in what we would call the physical universe. Um, The mystery of life and how a baby is conceived and how that baby transforms inside a mother's womb. We might be able to say with science, okay, this is the first trimester, the second trimester, and the third. But still, the flash of conception, the soul that that baby gets the individual traits of that baby the dna molecular structure of how that child is literally programmed inside of the mother's womb that's a beautiful mystery and science still can't you know they're still figuring out all the things in and around that mystery um the mystery of how a caterpillar a worm goes inside a cocoon and then weeks months later comes out a beautiful butterfly it transcends its old existence as a worm And comes out a beautiful butterfly with brand new capabilities. And so we have mystery all across this universe. Whether it's in the physical realms that we can see or whether we're talking about the spiritual realm. And so while this transformation is a mystery, it is is God's miraculous power that transforms us. And so what we want to do is, uh, and, and so the reason I say that is because, here's our mission statement. We want to make more and better disciples of Jesus through the power of his saving and transforming grace. That's our mission, to make more and better disciples through the power of Jesus saving and transforming grace. And so our church, so our mission as a church then is to place people in the pathway Of this mysterious miracle-working power that only God can do. Only God can change the heart's desires. Only God can help someone break free of an addiction, of a sin, of a way of thinking. Only God can change the heart. And so what we're trying to do as a church is through our mission statement and through our vision process, receiving, growing, serving, receive His grace, growing grace, and serving grace, What we're trying to do is to keep on point the process of how God does his transforming work. If there's one thing I've learned as a pastor in 16 years, I can't make anybody change. Some of you have learned that in your marriage. Can I get a witness? You can't make your spouse change, no matter how hard you try. The only thing you can try to do is get your spouse to the person who can. When anybody comes to me for counseling, I do a lot of counseling throughout the week. One thing, and my counselors will tell, will tell you, I've told them this, the, one of the first things I say to them is, I can't fix you, but all I can do is help you to fix your eyes on the one who can fix you. And so that's our mission as a church. And so our mission is to get people into this path of God's transforming power. And so with all that said, spiritual transformation is still mysterious in many ways, but it is measurable in our lives. We we would all say that God's transforming work of a heart, we look at it and we're like, wow, that's still mysterious to me. And, and 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 in a sense, that makes it something of God. You know, wow, God, you're the only one who can do this. You are worthy of the worship because only you can can do the work in someone's heart and life. But I do think that even though this is a mysterious work of God's spirit, it is measurable. And that's what we're going to see today in our passage. So the title of today's message is Measuring the Progress of Transformation. Let's look at two passages here in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So Paul tells us here, he tells the church of Ephesus, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. Now back up a couple of chapters to chapter 3. and Paul says this in chapter number 3. We'll read verses 17 and 19 here in a moment. Let me read the ones that follow up to it. Paul says, Ephesus, I'm praying for you. <laughs> For this cause I bow my knees, verse 14, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth. And the height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. So in these two passages, and there's many other places here in the book of Ephesians, where Paul addresses this theme but in these two passages that we read this morning, we see that Paul's focus was on getting the Church of Ephesus to understand the love of God in Christ. In fact, we know that later another apostle, John, would write about the church of Ephesus what? That they had all the things that they were doing right. They had the right doctrine, they had the right, all these right things, but they had left. Their first love. And so Paul, here in the book of Ephesians, hits on this theme. And from these two passages and many others that we'll look at today, we get this truth. And that is this. How do we measure spiritual progress in our life? How do we see this transformation work occurring? We kind of touched upon it a little bit last week, but we're digging into it today. And that is this. Here's the truth. The great measure of gospel transformation in our lives is love. You can go ahead and write that down. Write it real big. You have a big blank to write that with this week. The great great measure of gospel transformation in our lives is love. Is love. And you might say, Pastor, that's basic. Oh, it's basic, but it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's great. It's transformational when we see it. And so we're just going to really meditate upon this truth today, as Paul has laid it out here. He says, Be ye followers of God, be ye imitators, walk as dear children, and walk in love, he says in Ephesians 5. And then he says in Ephesians 3, Ephesus, I'm praying for you that you will start to understand, comprehend the measure of his love. So, he says this. He says, Be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering of a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Jesus says over to his disciples in John chapter 13, A new commandment. I give unto you. Why did Jesus say it was a new commandment? Hmm, That's a great thing to study this week. Don't have time to dig into that today. But he said, A new commandment I give to you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And then Jesus is like, and here's the measure of whether people are going to know you're my disciples. Measure, transformation, here it is. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. So it's amazing how basic this sounds, but it's amazing how little this is lived out. Because as we look around our world today, we don't see this often. We don't see love as being the hallmark of many Christians' lives. And so today we look at this truth because the measure of gospel transformation in our lives, if there's one thing that we could say, okay, this helps us to see if God's truth is transforming us, this helps us to see if this is genuine transformation and not just outward conformity to a system, but genuine, genuine transformation because of truth, here it is, it's love. It's a love for God, it's a love for others, It's a love for what God loves and seeing that love be shared with others. John Stott, a commentator, said this. He said, All progress in the Christian life depends upon a recapitulation of the original terms of one's acceptance with God. Big big words in there, but basically what he's saying is, All progress in our Christian life stems from remembering and revisiting the original Terms of one's acceptance with God and what you learn in the book of Romans along with other places in the Bible is that our terms of acceptance with God are based upon his love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and so with that said we want to ask four questions today and these are the blanks that you can write down as we think about these passages that we've read and as we look at others I wanna ask you four questions because as we look at this truth, the great measure of gospel transformation in our lives is love. Heard that, pastor? Gonna think about what's in the crock pot, gonna think about what's on TV this afternoon and the tendency is, we can check out. But I hope that these questions will help us to dig, will help us to say, hmm, have I really thought about this as much as I should be? And is this transforming my life? So the first question I want us to ask is this. Are we growing in our understanding of his transforming love? Are we growing in our understanding of his transforming love? You see, this is what Paul was praying for the church of Ephesus back there in chapter 3 that we read this morning. He's saying, Ephesus, I'm praying for you that you will understand this love. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height and to know the love of Christ. What is is Paul getting at and what were other writers of the New Testament getting at? I think what they were getting at, and I think what Paul is getting at here in this passage is If we've grown up in church, we know intellectually God loves us. We've heard that probably every Sunday in some way in our Bible classes and in our preaching. We know here in the head that God loves us. But as I shared with you a few weeks ago, there's times when the gospel writers, it's where that intellectual truth spilled over. And John would say something like, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. You see, if you really study the New Testament, you'll find that all the gospel writers had this theme of the love of God as one of the central things they wrote about. Certainly Paul, here in Ephesians, the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote about God's love, probably the most of all the apostles, but John wrote about it, 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4. I just told you about his, behold, he probably scared some people, you know, he's like, wow, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed." Peter talked about this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. Jude talked about this in Jude verse 21 and, and 23 and 24. All the New Testament writers had this theme of the love of God in some way. And so I think what the Lord is telling us by the Spirit today through His Word is, are we growing in our understanding of what this Word means and and who it's coming from? Let me illustrate this, okay? Uh, How many of you are familiar with psychology and how they do the uh, Rorschach test? Does anybody know what the Rorschach test is? Yeah, I've got some blobs up here. What do you see? All right, what do you see? You know, they put these things up there, and the psychologist is supposed to be able to tell you what kind of personality you are based on what you see. For instance, like in this one over here, you say, ooh, I see a tree. You know, the one on the right? How many of you don't see a tree? How many of you see something different? How many of you don't only see a tree and you're like why does everybody else see something different all right see so we're doing a little we're we're doing a little psychology here um so what's this illustration for well yeah what else is there up there okay so there's a tree but then there's also an ape looking at a lion everybody see the ape and the lion now look at the white there you go okay the kids are like yeah Ooh, i see it i knew i needed to stay in big church this morning all right so, this is called the Rorschach test. Why do they give people this? Um, so this test records subjects' perceptions of ink blots and then analyzes them using psychological interpretation, complex algorithms, or both. And so, some psychologists use these tests to examine a person's personality characteristics and emotional functioning. All right, so what I want to do now, everybody ready? We're going to have an experiment. What I want to do now is I want to do a spiritual Rorschach test. I'm gonna put a verse up on the screen. I'm gonna have you read it through quickly. And then I want you to tell me what what you saw in the verse, all right? It's our verse we read this morning in Ephesians 5. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. So the question is, Without rereading it, what do you recall about that verse? What do you recall? Well, love, but more specifically, do you immediately think, okay, God has told me that I need to be a follower, and the evidence of that is I need to be walking in love. How many of us would be honest and say, that's the main thing that I get from that verse when I read it? Raise your hand. For me, that was, you know, um, and, 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 and and in some way, it's because it's at the beginning of the verse. There's two imperatives there. There's two obligations. Be, ye followers of God, and walk. Those are in the imperative. Those are commands. And so, if we're not careful, we see those two obligations, and that's all we pull from the verse. But let's go back to the verse. Because what you also have in this verse is the motivation for doing it. it says, be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. And, but sometimes in our brain, that's all that we read. And we're like, oh yeah, and Christ has loved us. Blah, blah, blah. As if that's the throwaway point. That's actually the main point. That the only way we can walk in love and be followers is because he first loved us. And so I bring that out to say that hopefully as we grow in truth, we see both, but we see the indicative or the declaration that Christ has loved us because that's the motivating force for why we walk in love. We don't walk in love to earn his love. We walk in love because we have his love. In fact, that's John's whole argument in the book of 1 John chapter number 4. He says, if you do not love your brothers, how, how does the love of God dwell in you? And so my challenge to us, and I hope that this simple illustration gets us to stop and say, you know what? Maybe I need to think about his love some more. Maybe I need to dig in because I'm going to guarantee you I've spent 16 years studying the word as a pastor and... I feel like the more I know about God's love, the less I know sometimes because it's that incomprehensible. It's that good. It's that life transforming. And so the first question is, are we growing in our understanding of his transforming love? The second question is this. So in order to grow in understanding, it then requires T-I-M-E, time. So write that down. Are we growing in the time that we enjoy thinking about his love? Are we growing in the time that we enjoy thinking about his love. There's a difference between duty and delight. And you know you're growing in the love of God. You know you're growing in seeing this truth. And you know that it's transforming you as you begin to see different duties, different things as duties, and you start to see them as delights. For instance, being in church this morning Is there a part where this is our duty? Sure, the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But did we want to be here? Were we, could we not wait to get here and hear truth being sang and hearing the truth of God's word and, and seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and knowing that, man, we're in this together. And these worship gatherings are but a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like one day. Are these things that you call spiritual disciplines, reading God's word, praying, serving, are these things just merely drudgery? or Are they delightful? The Bible uh, says that David was a man after God's own heart. And we can clearly see this in many of the scripture passages that God used him to write. Look at some of these verses that David um, penned. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. David delighted in spending time with God. In fact, I don't think David ever thought of his spiritual walk with God as doing his devos. I know we use that growing up. Did you do your devos? It was just some, who he was. He just spent time with God. He, it, it, at some point, it went beyond just something on his checklist, and he was literally following hard after God. Psalm 68, verses 1 through 9, we don't have time to read all these verses, but just listen to these. Uh, Psalm 68, verses 1 through 8, says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirst for thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up mine hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed, and meditate on thee in the night watches because thou hast been my help therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice my soul follows hard after thee thy right hand upholds me do you hear in those verses that David was focused he was captivated he was longing to spend time with the lord my question for us as believers is are we enjoying is the time that we're enjoying god like that oh it should be god desires for it to be and so as we ask these questions number one are we growing in our understanding of his transforming love and in order to grow in our understanding of his transforming love the second question is Are we growing in the time that we enjoy thinking about his love? David would go on to say, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfieth the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. You know that you're growing in your Christian walk. You know that God's spirit is transforming you. When every day... Yes, there might be these set-aside times because we all know that we have to protect time because time gets away from us if we don't. We have to organize that. And so, yes, we have set-aside times, but you know what? It becomes a way of life, not just something we do in our daily schedule. You know, if my wife would really think that I'm a miserable person if I said, okay, honey, I'm here to spend time with you today, 10 minutes, start the timer now, go. It's not much of a relationship. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting from, okay, I got to do this because good Christians read their Bible to, I want to spend time with God. Because I think I understand his love. And I know that this love is to be the measure of, of, of growing in him and, and, and seeing this truth transform my life. And so if I'm going to understand it better, there has to be time invested And that time becomes so enjoyable, so enjoyable. In many of my counseling opportunities, it's it's amazing to watch that transformation. I've been working with this inmate at Morgan County Jail, uh, and I call her this inmate, my sister in Christ at Morgan County Jail, who just happens to be in a jail right now. And guys, I wish you could see how truth has just transformed her life. And now it's not about doing her devos. It's about spending time with Jesus. Because he's the lover of her soul. You know, for one who has experienced the love of God in deep and profound ways, what happens is, is you end up spending time with God and there's this fading fascination with the things that once held sway upon the human heart here in this world. John talks about this in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Because if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so the whole point is, when god captivates our heart greater loves move in and the old loves fade out i've given you the illustration before but just we'll summarize it real quick again i bought a old nintendo thing you know the nintendo on on a, uh, the, yeah all the games on it i bought it thinking ooh, i'm gonna play this a lot i got it home paid a lot of money for it plugged it in played super mario for 30 minutes i'm like eh boxed it back up sold it the next day why because I used to love video games, but now I don't have time for them, quite honestly. Why? Because there's greater love, there's greater focus in my life. And the same can be said of many of you, is, is as you look back on your life, you're like, wow, the things that once held sway over me no longer do. And the only way to see those things fade is to see the surpassing value and worth found in Christ and, and the fact that he loves you and, and he wants to spend time with you. And you're like, wow, God, God. You want to spend time with me? He's like, yeah, that's why I came. That's why I died. That's why I became in human flesh, so that you would know that I'm not put off by your body and uh, uh, your, your flesh and blood. I want to spend time with you. Oh, the gospel transforms every part of our life. And so are we spending time? Are we enjoying that time with him? John would say, behold. You know, you can't behold until you look, until you see it. And so John says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed. And so the great measure of spiritual progress in our life is love. Do we understand, are we growing in our understanding of love? Are we enjoying the time that is invested in understanding this love? And then thirdly, is the knowledge of his unfailing love increasing our faith? Is the knowledge of his unfailing love increasing our faith? I love what Ephesians 3.17 says. Look back there. We read these verses just a few moments ago. Ephesians 3.17, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. The knowledge of God's unfailing love brings confidence to our life. And we need that confidence because sometimes our circumstances can shake us to the core of where we're not sure that God loves us. If God really loved me, then why would he? If God really loved me, then why can't I? But see, of course, and there's so many layers to this and even understanding what love is. You see, God loves you where you are, but he never leaves you where you are. And so God's love is so great, and it's based in truth. And so God loves you, and and he wants to save you, shape you, transform you. And he wants you to understand this unfailing love that he has for you, because when you do, it increases your faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. There's a connection here between love and faith. First John 4, 18 and 17 expound upon this. It says, There is no fear in love. What is the opposite of faith but fear? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness, confidence in the day of judgment because as he is. So, are we in this world? What is, the, what is the basis of our confidence in the day of judgment? Knowing that we're rooted and grounded in Christ, knowing that we stand in His righteousness and what He has secured. So, there is no fear in love. The knowledge of His unfailing love increases our faith. I love how Paul puts this. Paul said, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see the connection between a knowledge of God's unfailing love increases our faith? Paul had his faith increased because Paul continued to grow in his understanding of God's love for him. And in turn, as he understood God's love for him, you know what, Paul Paul loved God more. We love him because he first loved us. And to understand the fact that he really did first love us causes us to love him more. Love is this wonderful thing. If you're struggling with love in your marriage, let me encourage you to love like Jesus loves. And you won't have to be looking for any other kind of love. Love can't help. When, when true love is given, it can't help but be reciprocated. It can't help but be reflected. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul was persuaded that none of these things could shake him. His faith was strong because he grew in his understanding of God's unfailing love for him. So, are we growing in our understanding of his transforming love? Are we enjoying the time that, that we think about his love in these disciplines of our life? Is the knowledge of his unfailing love increasing our faith? And then finally, the last question I want us to just think and meditate about is, are we growing in our love for one another? Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. So, Paul says that the evidence of God's love being received in your life is a giving of love to your brothers and sisters in Christ, walking in this love. He would expound this to another church, the Church of Thessalonica, when he had said, The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Are we growing in our love for one another? If we are, this love will be evidenced in three ways. Write these down. Number one, this love will be evidenced in a selfless service. Jesus was such a beautiful picture of this. There in that passage that I read to you earlier where he says, a new commandment I give unto you, right before that, in John 13, verses 1 and following, Jesus evidenced his love for his disciples by washing their feet. Selfless Service and oh, yeah, by the way, do you know who all's feet he washed when he washed his disciples' feet? He also washed Judas' feet. Then, after he washed Judas' feet, he sat next to Judas at the Lord's Supper and served Judas the communion bread and juice. It's easy for us to love our friends but you know what the gospel does enables us to love our enemies to pray for them to realize that they're not the enemy Satan is and they're just slaves who are waiting to be set free selfless service We struggle just showing selfless service to our brothers and sisters in Christ many times, but can you imagine if we went to the den of darkness in the world and started serving them? I wonder if that would give us an audience to be heard. You see, this love for one another will be seen in one a selfless service. Number two, a forgiving heart, a forgiving heart. Throughout the New Testament epistles, Love and forgiveness are tied indelibly. Paul says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so there's this, this heart that says, you know what? I'm going to stop keeping score. That's what a forgiver does. A forgiver says, I'm not going to keep score with you. It's, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We're going to talk about that later this year. But if someone who forgives just says, you know what? The war is over. The score is settled. I release you. That's what Jesus did. He forgave. From the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hmm. Do we love one another? We will when we understand his love, because it'll lead us to selfless service, a forgiving heart, and a genuine unity in the gospel family. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, talking about walking in love. But he mentions it in, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. He says, make sure that you're walking in love and do not let your liberty be a cause for an occasion to the flesh, that it would divide you, but that it would unite you. And then he says, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men, Romans 12, 18. We're want to talk more about unity tonight in our service at 6 p.m. But there's this genuine unity in the gospel family. So my questions this morning are who do you love? But the greatest question is is do you know who loves you? Have you grown in your understanding of God's great love for you? Is the time that you're spending with him increasing your joy or is it drudgery? Is the knowledge and experience of his unfailing love increasing your faith? Are you persuaded like Paul was? Is this mysterious miracle of your spiritual transformation evidencing itself with selfless service, a forgiving heart, and genuine unity? As we close our service today, I'm gonna ask um, Caitlin and Rebecca to get in place. I wanna share with you a story Uh, This story is from a book that I've read recently called Because He Loves Me by Elise Fitzpatrick, a great commentary on this whole theme of transformation, how the love of God transforms us. And she shares several case studies in the book. And I want you to listen to the story about Julie. I hope there's no Julies here. This isn't about you. If you are Julie, this is just a name. You can insert whatever name. But let me tell you the story about Julie. And listen to how her problems, her sin issues, can only be dealt with by believing the gospel, and what's the gospel? That God loves her completely and unconditionally, and He sent Jesus to die for her, to be raised for her, and to sit at the seat of the right hand of the Father for her. Listen to this. Julie is a 17-year-old high school senior who has struggled with habits of self-starvation, self-induced vomiting, and over-exercise for three years. She is a believer. And she recognizes that her troubling behavior is sinful and is damaging her health. But she's absolutely terrified by the thought that she might become fat. But at the same time, she's terrified by what might happen if she doesn't change with all these destructive things she's doing to her body. She's tried to stop these behaviors of starving herself, vomiting, over-exercise, but she hasn't had much success. Now the question is... How does the gospel of God's amazing love speak to Julie in her sin? Here's what the gospel declares. God loved her so much that he came to this earth as flesh and blood to fully understand what it was like to both eat food and suffer hunger. Having a body isn't evil. Jesus had a flesh and blood body. They were created by God and God became one himself. The doctrine of the incarnation, God becoming human flesh, tells Julie of a love so infinite that Jesus was willing to confine his divine life into a human body of flesh so that he might bring her to himself as his beloved child. That's so important, her identity. Julie's eating disorder is rooted in prideful perfectionism and her deriving her worth or validation or acceptance or approval from what others think of her outward appearance rather than from God. But no matter how hard she strives, she cannot be perfect. However, she can rest in the sinless life, the perfect sinless life that Jesus lived for her. He was able to keep the law in every place. Therefore, Julie doesn't have to strive for perfection in her own strength. She can stop her frantic search to cover up her inadequacies because Christ has already clothed her with robes of righteousness. Then Julie looks to the cross. The cross is a stark reminder of the great price tag of sin. What is the price tag of sin? Death, shame, nakedness, loneliness, brokenness. But she sees that Jesus loved her and was willing to allow his body to suffer shame, exposure, and brokenness for her sin. His sacrifice was able to completely forgive her of all of her sins. Her sins of self-focus, self-love, for all of her fear, dishonesty, harsh words, comparing, complaining, vanity, selfishness. And so she sees the cross and what Jesus did for her there. Then she sees that Jesus was raised from the dead for her. So she can be assured of two things. First, his sacrifice was accepted by God and he has forgiven her. Secondly, the power of the sins of unbelief, self-love, self-worship have truly been broken in her life. She can have faith to continue to do battle against these sins because Jesus has gone before her and assured her of her ultimate glorification in him. Even though these sins may feel more powerful than her faith, she can assure herself of the truth that she's now living a new life empowered by the resurrected Son of God. Because Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, still in flesh, though glorified, still in flesh, in flesh and blood, but now a glorified body, her body isn't loathsome to the Father. In fact, He loves her. And loves her so much that he's going to change her body. He's going to bring her body, soul, and spirit into his presence one day. Because she is already beautiful to God, she can begin to enjoy her body rather than to see it as her enemy or her identity. She no longer has to see her outward shell as her identity, but see her inner man, the new nature, the spirit of God as her new identity. She's a daughter of God. In addition, her Savior is speaking to the Father on her behalf. Jesus is praying for her. He is empowering her through his spirit, granting her peace and grace and sustaining strength to face these issues in her life. So in light of all these truths about the gospel, Julie then must valiantly renew her mind by identifying the lies that she's always believed. The lie of, I would be worthless if I were fat. My real worth is based on whether I can approve of myself. That's the lie she's been believing. She's got to renew her mind and realize that her outer man is decaying. That outward shell is getting older, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. She's got to see that Jesus Christ has declared her worth in his love. Because he loves her, she doesn't have to strive to attain the love and respect of others. Next, she's got to put off the behaviors that flowed from these lies, starving herself, weighing herself continually, gluttonous eating, over-exercise. At the same time, she's got to put on godliness, humbly confessing her sins to other sisters in Christ who can pray for her, asking for help and focusing her life on the service of others. What does Julie need to hear in the gospel? Take courage, Julie. You are my daughter. I love you. Your sins are forgiven. The only way to see lasting transformation in your life, no matter what sin it is, fill in the blank, is to see the beauty of Christ and his love for you in the gospel. It is love. The love of Christ constrains us. It transforms us. Let's pray.